0: Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can be spiritually prepared to study the Word this evening to make sure we're in fellowship. Use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed so very grateful that we have the freedom to gather together in this country to freely proclaim your word. And we know that there are many who would seek to curtail this freedom, enemies of this country that are outside the country, inside the country, and even inside the government who have lost their passion for freedom and liberty and have opted for solutions to problems that are not grounded in the vision of our founding fathers, a vision that includes freedoms related to the freedom of speech, the freedom of worship, the freedom of conscience. Father, we pray that these freedoms might be preserved and that as we are entering this election season, that you would oversee this election in a way that would preserve our freedoms and that we might continue to proclaim the gospel and be a firm, solid support for Israel. And Father, we do continue to pray for Israel, for the leadership there, the decisions they make, because in the midst of the many threats that now surround that small country, their decisions, their actions will certainly impact the entire world. Whether they act or whether they don't act, it will have significant consequences. And this is as you would have it, because Israel is at the center of your plan for history and the center of your plan for the future. And so, Father, we pray for wisdom for those leaders, and we pray for us that no matter what the future may bring, that we might be steadfast, we might have real joy and peace in our lives and be a testimony and a witness for, the grace, for your grace and for the truth of the gospel. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 we will continue our study in dealing with how the believer is dead to the law. But a couple of updates. First of all, the announcement I thought of was just to give you all a little update on my dad. Not much has changed. Little glitches here and there uh, show up. He is still in the VA hospital. I'm still waiting on alternative uh, places. Uh, to send him, because he's under VA care, I have to have, my options are limited to places, nursing homes and medical foster homes that are contracted with the VA. So I'm still waiting for uh, some more places to go uh, look at, and that will probably involve time, a lot of time next week. Fortunately, I, as I mentioned last week, I have good help. So, and he is comfortable and not in pain and uh, doing doing well, he surprises them. One day they think he's going to die in 36 hours because they don't know him. And then he gets a little more rest that night and he springs back. We are, as human beings, I I have observed, incredibly tenacious to life. And that's how God made us. So it it takes a lot longer for us to go and it's all in God's hands. And so I'm very comfortable with that. That is not a... uh, uh, there are things that I learn as I go through this that that when we when we minister to people i 'm always thinking about second Corinthians one and that the Apostle Paul talks about how we comfort others with the comfort with which we 've been comforted so there 's sort of there 's a an important learning process that we all go through that helps us as we in turn comfort minister to one another in the body of christ and one of the things that I have noticed before but it 's always a little different when you go through it, is that as we deal with people who are strong believers and they're facing loss in their life, loss of parents, loss of a spouse, loss of children, and of course who that loss is has different uh, implications in in their life and will uh, impact the grief in different ways. But as we go through this, we understand and strong believers understand that when this person dies, they're absent from the body and they're face to face with the Lord. And especially when you're looking at an older person, uh, a parent that has lived a g- good life, a solid believer, it's hard to watch them suffer because you don't like that. And you know that when the, that they need to go ahead and and uh, go to be with the Lord, but there's a reason why they're there. Even though we may not understand it, there's a reason God leaves them there to teach others things, and uh, and that. But it is, um, it's it's not those. It's not the fact as it is. I think with with people who are not believers and don't have a certainty of what happens at death, it is not the fact that a loved one is dying that often bothers us. It is all of the collateral. Issues in life, the decisions, the legal issues, the all of the hospital hazarai, and all of this other stuff that comes along, that is um, is distracting and often seems somewhat overwhelming because you just don't know what it is, and and that that's what <clears throat> weighs on it. And, and I find in my even in my own thinking that it's not that I'm worried. It's just there's there's levels of uncertainty. You trust the Lord. It's not even a matter of whether you're trusting the Lord or not. It's just a matter of all of this extra stuff that's there that needs to be done. And so often I think about our Lord before he went to the cross as he was under such emotional pressure in the garden of Gethsemane that he sweated blood. The pressure was there and he was, He felt it. There's nothing wrong with those feelings sometimes as christians we get the idea that if we're really trusting god we're just going to be peaceful and have joy and we're not going to feel the overwhelming reality of the circumstances that it's not going to get heavy and maybe even uh, oppressive i didn't say depressive but oppressive because it's heavy it's serious there's a lot that's there though our lord never sinned he felt that and that is something that we sh- that should comfort us. We can't deny reality. You don't deny the loss. You don't deny the sorrow. You don't deny all of the pressure and everything else that may go with it at different times that that weighs on you. That's not a failure to trust. It is the, it's the reality of the circumstance. So uh, I hope that encourages some people as we all face these things that it's not a problem to feel the weight of the circumstances our lord certainly did the problem is when we let that move us into areas of carnality it's how we respond to that that's important it's not that we have those feelings or those emotions the other thing i want to update you on was this little nasty little thing that made the front page last week about this scrap of a fragment of a uh, an alleged Gnostic gospel. It was a fourth, allegedly a scrap of a fourth century copy of a late second century Gnostic gospel. From my readings in the last week, a couple of things have come out. Number one, if it is legitimate, and that there's a lot of doubt now. In fact, this evening uh, or late this afternoon, when I was trying to catch uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's speech on 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 uh, the television, I happened to catch an item in the scroll going across the news at the bottom that the Vatican had come out with a paper rec, uh, claiming that this was a, a fake so they've looked at it they think it's a fake The other, another aspect to this is that it seems to be a copied lines copied out of uh, a part of maybe the Gospel of Thomas or something else that was already there the line that's in there that talks about the the wife Uh, alludes to a wife for Jesus is a really obscure line but it often is that that kind of language I didn't point this out last week that kind of language is often used in reference to the church as the bride of Christ And, and, and you find that in some of the even the orthodox literature at the time just because of that phraseology it's the bride of Christ and it could be translated or understood as the wife of Christ anyway this is a, written in Coptic, and it's bad Coptic, and Coptic experts that I've read about have dismissed it as a complete fake or fraud. Now, they haven't had the time yet to, to do the test on the ink and the, and the uh, uh, parchment that it's written on things of that nature yet, but, but in terms of just the superficial epigraphal, uh, epigraphical evidence, it seems like this is, this is a fake. So I just thought I would update you on that. You don't have to lose any more sleep over that in the coming week. All right, we're getting into some great material in Acts chapter 7, and I was talking with Dan Ingram on the way over uh, to class tonight, and um, <clears throat> we're just going over some things, and, and And I was telling him a little bit about the conference next week, that he he's not coming up for it, but on this dispensational topic and the fact that I'm on this panel next, next week to say some things about how dispensational theology impacts what I, how I teach and what I teach from the pulpit. And, it, it's, and I'm just reflecting on this as I was studying today in Romans 7. How somebody can work their way through Romans 6-8 without at least a rudimentary dispensational framework is beyond me. And when we when we understand going back to the beginning of Romans 6, that Paul lays the groundwork for talking about sanctification with the uh, baptism by the Spirit. And if we reflect back in terms of what we've gone through as a congregation the last three years as we've studied Colossians and Romans and Acts, we saw the same uh, type of argument in Colossians chapter 2, starting in about verse 5 or 6, where Paul laid the groundwork in terms of the baptism by the the Holy Spirit and continued to use that kind of language through the core section of Colossians. And then at the same time, we're in Acts where we've dealt with issues related to covenant. We've dealt with kingdom, the new covenant, the whole message of the kingdom and repentance and how these things have all come together. And as a pastor, as I've been studying this, it, it it comes together and, and things get clarified in my thinking. Uh, sometimes things were were. It's not that I didn't understand something. It just that it 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 comes into brighter light and get, becomes a little more clear as scriptures compared to scripture and more light is shed on these these passages. And Romans seven is is one of those particular issues, especially in this first first part in Romans seven six. Just to direct your attention to the, the end of this opening, uh, opening uh, introductory hinge paragraph, as I pointed out last time, Paul says, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by. So we were held by the law. It, we, we are, the law is not dead, but we're dead to it now. For the purpose or for the result that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit. Notice he, here he mentions the Spirit for the first time in these three chapters. And it's a contrast with the law. Now that's very important to understand that the law is contrasted with the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. And then he says that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, that terminology to refer to the law and the letter of the law is, is really developed more in Second Corinthians chapter 3, where he talks about the, the, the Spirit gives life, but the letter kills. A, a really difficult passage in there in Second Corinthians 3 that I've often had questions about. But all of these are related, and it all is important to understand because these these passages address this issue that Christians have had such problems understanding down through the years is what is the role of the law, the Mosaic law, in the church age? What is the purpose of the Mosaic law in the church age? And beyond that, we even have real problems understanding what the role of the Mosaic law was Under the age of the law, Uh, how many people, how many of us have been under the impression at one point or another that the observance of the Mosaic law was a means to salvation in the Old Testament or a means to sanctification in the Old Testament? And how well do we understand even the whole concept of, of personal experiential growth in the Old Testament under the dispensation of the law when they didn't have the Spirit and that this this whole concept of the baptism by the Spirit is being foundational to understanding the distinction between this dispensation and the previous dispensation is it just, it, 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 it becomes larger and larger in, in my thinking because there was no, with no baptism of the Spirit, as I pointed out a few weeks ago when we hit uh, 6.14, with no baptism of the Spirit in the Old Testament, the, the sin nature isn't dead. I mean, the, the, when we don't die to the sin nature. The sin nature isn't, uh, the old man, rather, isn't crucified. There, there's, there's, we're not delivered from the tyranny or the dominion of the sin nature because there's no baptism by the Holy Spirit. And as I, as I hit that, and that was really a new thought to me as I looked at it from that perspective, realizing that without the Holy Spirit, What's your trajectory going to be in your spiritual life? It's not going to be a whole lot of success. And if we go back, and, and I've been rethinking the Old Testament in light of that, and you realize that, that outside of a few key individuals and, and bright lights in the Old Testament, the history of Israel under the law is a negative trajectory. They never get there. There are times when they are close, but they are few and far, far between. The law just can't do it. It's a huge negative lesson that the law just, morality just isn't enough. In fact, not only is it not enough, not, is it not only is it going to fail to elevate the culture on any, for any length of time, it's... The emphasis on the on morality, as we see, is probably going to stimulate the sin nature, and it's going to just lead to greater greater regression. And that's that's how the law is described in this chapter. That it's through the law that we know sin, and the law sort of aggravates the sin nature. It, it's as it's, it's like I know nobody here has ever had this experience, but but every now and then when I am driving along on a on a major thoroughfare and you're approaching an intersection and that the light turns yellow you see people who are <clears throat> far from that light just suddenly just put the pedal to the metal and to in order to beat that yellow light and usually it's it's pretty pretty orange if not flaming red when they go through the intersection it, it's something about the law that says don't do this that makes us want to do it i remember when when um, I was a kid, I think, in high school when they built the flagship hotel down in Galveston, and they had they put up signs about not fishing out of the rooms because they they would cast in the they didn't want the weights coming back and breaking the windows. It wasn't until they put up the signs that they had a problem with people fishing out of the windows. <laughs> Don't fish out of the window. Hey, what a great idea! Is anybody looking? Let me try. When the law says don't do something, it gives us ideas. We want to see if we can get away with it. It aggravates the sin nature. That's what Paul's going to say in, in Romans 7. But what, So the law wasn't the means to personal holiness in the sense of experiential righteousness. Uh, it, it, it's a failure. So Romans 7 is a, to me, Romans 7, as I've studied it, in the past many times is kind of a negative between six and eight. Six is all about what we have in Christ. Eight is what the Holy Spirit provides. Seven is you really can't do it on your own by just trying to pull yourself up by your own moral bootstraps, by by the law. It's always going to lead to frustration and failure in, in the spiritual life, so it's sort of a negative. But but as I've been going through some things with it today, I've sort of gotten excited because it's I've, I've gone through and connected some dots with some other passages, which always help us get a little further clarification of what the scriptures teach. So where I want to start, again, going back to the beginning of this this chapter, is Paul is going to say some negative things about the law in this chapter. He says some very positive things about the law uh, in this chapter, too. In verse 12 he says, Therefore the law is holy. And the commandment, holy and just is good. And I want to start with that emphasis this evening because it's easy in light of some of the things said in the New Testament for us to walk away with the wrong impression that somehow the law was just not quite there. But if we go back to the Old Testament, the testimony of the the Scriptures in the Old Testament again again and again and again and again and again is that the law is perfect But if if the law is perfect, the Holy Spirit just goes beyond that infinitesimally. It's beyond anything we can imagine what we have in the Holy Spirit. So that's what I mean by the title. If the law was perfect, then the Holy Spirit is beyond perfect. As I pointed out last time, and I did a little work on this chart to bring the issues out a little more, is that Romans 6 focuses on the fact that When we're saved, we're dead to sin. In Romans 7, the issue is that we're dead to the law. It's not that sin died or the law died, but that we become dead to that. It breaks that authority. That's why he uses the illustration uh, for marriage in in verses 2 and 3. All he's saying there is that we recognize that, that when two people are bound together by the law, when there's a death that legal binding is broken. That's all he's saying there in that illustration. And the the analogy he draws from that that we see comes out in verse 4 where he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law. That conclusion tells us that the purpose for the illustration is just to simply make the point that with our identification with Christ's death, that has separated us from the bonds of the law. And there's no longer a tie there. We looked at two issues, defining law, and then the significance of the illustration. And the word law, as I pointed out here, is not a general sense of law, a universal principle, Roman law, Greek law, but law in Romans is all about the Mosaic Law. It is the focal point. So this is talking about the Mosaic Law. Now, what was the view of the Old Testament in terms of the Mosaic Law? I think this is so important for us to be reminded about, and as I went over these verses in preparation, these are some of the greatest chapters in Scripture. If you don't have them underlined in your Bible, you should have them underlined in your Bible and uh, I, I just want to go through some of these passages in the in the Old Testament, talking about the the value of the law. And in Psalm, it's real easy to remember the key Psalms related to the Word of God. It's Psalm 19, and then Psalm 119. And in Psalm 19, there's uh, two two parts to the Psalm. The first part talks about the non-verbal revelation of God as revealed in the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And then in verse 7 to focus on the verbal revelation of God. So we have general revelation, non-verbal, and special revelation. And look at what he says. And I've underlined the different terms that David uses to talk about the law, the Torah that God has revealed to Moses. He calls it the law of the Lord. In verse 7, the testimony of the Lord. In verse 8, the statutes of the Lord, uh, the commandment of the Lord. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. And then there's a conclusion in verse 10. He says that regarding the law, he says that it is perfect. I need to have a darker font on that, don't I? It's hard to tell when I'm on my computer because you don't see it like it, Projects. Uh, The law of the Lord is perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true and righteous. Now, all of that is true about the Mosaic Law. So we shouldn't get a negative idea about the law. It is spoken of in only the highest terms of value in the Old Testament. It is more to be desired. He says in verse 10, then gold, yea, then much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. There is nothing of greater value than the law. Then we get into Psalm 119. And in Psalm 119, we learn that in the Old Testament dispensation, the law was the means of cleansing from sin. How is one cleansed from sin? By observing the law, the ritual cleansing, as well as confession before God. Psalm one hundred nineteen nine and 11. 119, 9 tells us how a young man can cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word. And in Psalm 119, if you go through Psalm 119, there are uh, some... Uh, what, 176 verses. This is the longest chapter uh, in the Bible, and it is preceded by Psalm 117, which is the shortest. Psalm 119 talks about the law. It's an acrostic in the Hebrew. That means if you go through the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalach, Hevav, Zion, then when you go through that alphabet, what they've done is the first word in each, in each section there are about 8 verse 8 or 9 verse sections as you go through each 8 verse section the first word in each section starts with the next letter in the alphabet from the one before so it follows the order of the alphabet Oh, the switch turned itself off okay so Psalm 119 nine, how can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word Word is used here. There's a lot of different parallels for the law. Law, statutes, ordinances, ways, precepts, uh, commandments, righteous judgments, word. These are all talking about the law. And then the other way in which we are cleansed is not just taking heed or obeying your word, but hiding it in our heart, memorizing it. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's preventative care. So it's not just observing the word for cleansing, but for staying in fellowship. Then we have uh, other verses that talk about the study of the law as the highest value, the greatest thing that a person can do. The psalmist says, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. How much we, time we spend pursuing wealth, pursuing money, pursuing security, the things that money can, can buy, and there's nothing wrong with that. But here the psalmist is saying he values the word as much as all of that, if not more. He says, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. He only gets that from the word. I will delight myself in your statutes. Now, how many times have you read through Deuteronomy and thought, I'm just delighted to read this? Attitude check. Verse uh, 17, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. So he sees the law as a path to life. Psalm 119, 18, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. There is such a sense of excitement here to know the word. And I know many of you that that, that you can remember back at a time, not that you're bored with it now you wouldn't be here, but you remember a time when, When you were so excited and most of us were that way when we were young and I think that is typical of when we first began our growth as Christians because it's all new and we have a lot of questions we want to have answered and so we're very excited about it. And And I believe that as we get older that our motivation changes and it's at that motivation shift period that people fall out. Because you start off wanting answers to questions like most young people have. Why am I here? How do I know it's true? How can I solve these problems in my life? We seem to have so many problems when we're 20 years old or 25 or 30. And and problems from, from who am I going to marry to why did I marry this person to how am I going to deal with these babies who keep me up all night and then I have to work 14 hours and all these different things that are coming along and hitting us uh, with the, the details of life and and yet we we want answers we want to be able to 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 solve problems in life but but somewhere after 15 or 20 years in the word we get most of those questions answered there's some maturity there we grow up and then the issue isn't coming so much to learn new things to satisfy the questions it's that i need to be reminded every day of god's faithfulness of the importance of his word of His provision for me so that I can stay the course. I I can't just fall away. I'm not motivated because I'm trying to learn new things, though I will. I'm motivated because I need to be reminded of the many things I've already learned that God is faithful because it doesn't take more than about 12 hours for me to forget that God is faithful and forget the promises and start trying to handle all the issues in life on my own instead of depending upon the Lord. The psalmist goes on to say that it is the law that's the means of dealing with a hostile world. In verse twenty three he says, princes also sit and speak against me. Now this is David writing, most likely. And he's talking about princes who speak against me. He's talking about those who are rulers, either with maybe within his own kingdom, conspiracies, whatever those who are against him. And he says instead, but your servant meditates on your statutes. How do you handle the pressures of people, problems, attacks, slander, all of these things, whether it's coming from, from friends, co-workers, people you thought were friends, family members? How do you handle that? How do you handle it when you live in a country where the leadership is all going in the wrong direction? And, and I, every now and then I hear people say, well, if so-and-so gets elected, and we've heard this from people on the left, people on the right, so-and-so gets elected, I'm I'm moving. I don't know where I would move to because the things that are coming into the U.S. that I don't like are in place everywhere else. We're just trying to be like the rest of the world. The United People in the United States have forgotten that what made the United States great is that we weren't like anybody else. And what's going to destroy us is when we become just another copy of the same old basic socialism that everybody else has. We are distinct, and what keeps us focused when everything's going the wrong way around us is the Word. Psalm 119.28, he says, My soul melts from heaviness. And I spoke about this earlier. We go through times when the pressure is very real, and we feel it, and there's nothing wrong with feeling it. He, this, David says, my soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. And in verse 92, he's, he talks about how if, it ha- if he hadn't spent all the time in the word, he never would have been able to handle the problems he's handled. Unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. It is a study of the word that is a source of good judgment and knowledge. We want to make wise decisions, then we need to immerse ourselves in the law. The Old Testament as well, it's a source of wisdom. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. It is more valuable, just as the psalmist said in Psalm 19, it's more valuable than money or the things that money can buy. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. It illuminates our path, our life. The word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This is the law. How can we think negatively about the Mosaic law? This is the Torah. How can we think negatively when the Old Testament under divine inspiration is extols the law of such value? Look at some other passages, Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. I'm not going to read through all of those verses, but it talks about the commandment, the statutes, the judgments in verse 1, and that the Lord has commanded uh, Moses to teach the people that they may observe them when they come into the land. Why? That they can fear the Lord, verse 2. And that they're, at the end of verse 2, that their days may be prolonged. There's real practical value there. Verse 3, that it may be well with them and that they may multiply greatly. You want to have genuine prosperity, success, and a rich, full life. It comes from being, from knowing the law and being obedient to the law. So what do you have to do? It has to be with you everywhere you go. When you stand up, sit down, lie down, drive. Uh, walk, work out, watch TV, go out to eat, everywhere. And that's what you see in the famous passage from uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, your eyes, etc. It's everywhere in your life. Is the word of God that real to you? And this is just talking about the law. And if the law was perfect, as I pointed out at the beginning, the spirit is even better. It's mo, this Holy Spirit is more perfect, mo' better. Moses told his father-in-law Jethro, uh, said, um, or Jethro says, I, your father-in-law, I'm coming... I got the wrong verse there. Skip that one. Isaiah 42, 21. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will exalt the law and make it honorable. So God's going to exalt the law. And then the last, almost the last verse in the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 4, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. The value of the law could not be stressed more in the Old Testament. That is why it is so valued by the Jews when Jesus comes. What's the problem? The problem is they misunderstood the purpose. It's not that they valued something they shouldn't value. It's they valued it for the wrong reason. They thought that the law was the path to righteousness before God, that by observing the law they could acquire the same, the righteousness that only God can give. In the New Testament, we also find that the major people in the New Testament emphasize the value of the law and respect it. In Matthew 5, 17 and 19, Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill for assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. There's a high value on, that Jesus placed on the law, but not the Pharisaical interpretation of the law. That was what was wrong. A very interesting passage and verse takes place in Acts 21. In Acts 21, this is when Paul is returning to Jerusalem, he's taken a vow, he's going to go to Jerusalem, and there was nothing wrong with him going to Jerusalem and observing these days because he's not doing it to gain righteousness. I think that is something that has been difficult for people to comprehend in the past, but there, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, look at this verse. This is so enlightening. On the following day, this is when Paul has now come to Jerusalem, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. So this is a power meeting between Paul and this is uh, James, uh, the uh, 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 half-brother of Christ, who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And all the leaders in the Jerusalem church are there. And when he greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So he gives them an after-action report of his uh, previous missionary journeys and all that God is doing among the Gentiles. And when they heard it, what's their response? They glorified the Lord. There's no indication here that anybody's off base, out of fellowship, focused on the wrong thing. They glorified God because of what he has accomplished through Paul. And they say to him, pay attention to this. You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. Okay? They're believers. They have trusted in Jesus as the Messiah who have believed, and what? They are zealous for the law. See, they're not trying to use the law the wrong way, which is what the Pharisees did, but they still have a passion for the law. Remember, only about maybe half of the New Testament is written at this time. The only thing any church-age believers have at this time that is the written word of God is the Old Testament. It's the Torah, and they value it. And they're still observing it. Why? Remember, we're still in that transition zone, and the temple is still there. And as far as uh, Jews are concerned, whether they're believers or not, there is still a, a, a responsibility to the Mosaic Law to fulfill those those ritual commands. It would mean how you understood it that would make a difference if you were a Christian versus. Uh, a, a Jew who had not understood it correctly and was trying to gain righteousness through the ritual. But just a few verses after this, as Paul goes out, and the crowd reacts to him, uh, they cry out, and now they are misrepresenting his view of the law. He doesn't correct it. He doesn't, there's no correction from Paul after verse 20 when he said, "Look, there's there's thousands of Jews." who have believed, and they're all passionate for the law. Paul doesn't say, well, wait a minute, they're really screwed up. They're wrong. They're a bunch of legalists. That's all wrong. They're a bunch of Judaizers. And there's no correction there. There's no hint in the text that they have a wrong attitude. But what happens after this is as Paul goes out, and, and and all of a sudden the rumor goes through the crowds at the temple that Paul was there, then there's they start crying out, that he's there and they misrepresent his view of the law. See, he's still respectful of the law. That's why he's there. And they're crying out, Men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, against the law, and this place. Against goes with all those places. Against the people, against the law, and against his place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. See, this is just all a lie. Lying didn't start in the last 20 years in politics or in religion. It's been around for a very, very long time, all the way back to Cain. There's been lying. And they're lying for their own cause and their own agenda, and they're accusing Paul of something that is not true at all. He is not against the temple. hasn't said anything against the temple. He's not against the the law at all. But you have to understand it right. This was the same charge... That they brought against Stephen. Remember in Acts six, thirteen, they also set up false witnesses to accuse Stephen, saying, This man does not seek to speak blasphemous words against his holy place in the law. But Stephen did not speak blasphemous words anything against the law or against the temple. In Acts 18.13, when Paul was on his second missionary journey and went to Corinth, he followed his normal standard operating procedure, went to the synagogue first, and then uh, after that, when he would usually get kicked out after a while, but he would usually gain a hearing from a certain segment of the Jewish population who would respond to the gospel message and believe Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, they they created such an uproar in Corinth that the Jews in the synagogue tried to bring charges against him in court and they took him before uh, Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, and brought these, these charges. And their charge was that this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But what we're going to see is Paul has a high view of the law. He just doesn't have the pharisaical view of the law. He doesn't look at the, as, at the law as a means of righteousness. That was what he believed before he realized that Jesus was the Messiah, before he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. That's what he says in Philippians chapter 3, is that he, he was a seeker of righteousness from the law. That's what was wrong. It wasn't that the law wasn't important, wasn't valuable, wasn't perfect. And as I said in the title, the law is perfect, but the spirit is better, more perfect, is beyond perfect. And part of this was because there was just this, this misunderstanding in terms of the, the role and the purpose and the function of, of the law under Second Temple Judaism. Judaism as the Pharisaical party developed after the return to the, to the land in an attempt initially to protect the people from violating the law as they did before the fifth cycle of discipline hit them in, in 586. In order to protect them, they, they, so they had good intentions, but as my mother always told me, the road to hell is paved with good intentions it never gets you where you think it will get you it always diverts you the role of the law was good it was holy perfect and righteous as paul says but it's perfect but its purpose was first of all romans 3:20 for through the law comes the knowledge of sin it wasn't to ma- the law's purpose wasn't to Give us a path to righteousness, but to expose our incredible need for righteousness. That there is none righteous, no, not one. Not one person can live up to the standard of the law. Romans 5.20, the law came in that the transgression might increase. The more thou shalt nots there are, the more we want to see if we can get away with it. And if no one's looking but that doesn't mean that the law is not good. As Paul says in 1 Timothy one eight, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully according to its purpose. So he says in Romans 7, 1, do you not know brethren, speaking to them as the Roman uh, Christians who are a large segment of which were were converted Jews who had trusted in Jesus as Messiah, do you not know brethren, for I speak to those who know the law. That is, he's talking to Jewish background believers here, making sure they understand the, the limitations of the Mosaic law. Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now, the rest of those initial verses from 2 through 6 are to show that when a death occurs, The law no longer has dominion. We're freed from the law. But before we get into that, I wanted to divert our focus a little bit to this whole question of the role and relationship of the law and the church-age believer. This will take us through about six passages, a couple of them we can hit fairly quickly. but We won't, won't get through all six of them this evening, but at least we will get started and then... Uh, wrap this next week the first is a passage that we will get to i hope before the end of the year in acts chapter 15 i'm pretty sure we will there's a lot of redundancy in acts 10 uh, 11 and 12 with the cornelius episode so that won't take uh, months to get through those three chapters it's amazing how much there is there in acts 10 through 12 because all these things happen to peter and then Peter comes to Cornelius and, t- and rehearse, re- rehearses for him everything that we've already heard, so it's repeated a second time. And then when Peter gets back to Jerusalem, he tells the whole story a third time. The Holy Spirit wants us to read it three times to make sure we get the point. But as we teach our way through it, we don't need to have quite that level of repetition. In Acts 15:1 through 29, there is a meeting that occurs another high-level meeting of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. This is usually referred to as the Jerusalem Council. And in the Jerusalem Council, the question is, now that Paul has gone out into the uh, into the Gentile countries and had such a tremendous response from Gentiles in, uh, in terms of uh, their response to the gospel, the question is, what are we going to do with all these uncircumcised Gentiles. They haven't, uh, they're not following the law. What is the role and what's the relationship of the law of Moses now to these Gentiles? Do they have to obey the law? And this forms a background for issues that are going to come up as we'll see because the second passage is in Galatians 3. uh, comes up and, and Paul is going to be plagued by a group of Jews that follow him and antagonize him and stir up the Jewish population against him as he teaches because they're claiming he is against the law he is against their interpretation of the law that one can be righteous or tzedek by means of the law and so the jerusalem council there they have to answer this question and so we're told that the apostles and the elders come together to consider the matter and they they each have their say and Peter stands up and talks to them. And again, he goes back to the first, to, I mean, to the uh, Acts 10 and 11 uh, episode with Cornelius and talks about how God opened the door to the Gentiles uh, through him. And uh, in verse 9, he says, "God, uh, eight and 89. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Notice the foundation there. It is that, that giving of the Holy Spirit which is the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit which is what brings us all into the body of Christ. That's the foundation for biblical Christian living for New Testament sanctification and spiritual growth is the, that that act of the Holy Spirit making no distinction between us and them. You can hear Paul in the background in Galatians 4 that there's neither June or Greek, bond or slave, male or female, for we are one in Christ. It's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and then Peter says, So why, are you, why do you want to put the law on the Gentiles? This is a great verse. In verse, verse 10 he says, Now therefore why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Now think about that a minute. Peter is saying that that the law which is what good and perfect and holy and more to be desired than gold and silver or anything in life that it was a what it was a yoke that we couldn't bear what he's saying is that that it put us under a bondage because we couldn't achieve it. We couldn't fully, completely obey the law, and that is not... uh, and, and it ended up destroying us. Now, he doesn't say it quite like that, but that's the perspective I'm picking up from looking at some of these other passages that without the Holy Spirit, without the baptism of the Holy Spirit, without the death of the tyranny of the sin nature in the Old Testament, that Israel under the law was really doomed to failure because there's no way that on the basis of the law they could ever overcome the sin nature on the basis of morality in my understanding of dispensations what happens in each dispensation is that God in his administration of that period of his, of each period of history gives certain assets to humanity and there's a different set of assets in each dispensation. So when all of history is said and done, we're going to look back and we're going to say every variable was covered. Every possibility was covered. And under no possibility, under no variable, under no condition, was man able to pull himself up by his own bootstrap, solve his spiritual problems apart from God. Apart from God, there's just failure. Man can't do it on his own. And even under perfect environment with a perfect political system and a perfect king because man is flawed by the sin nature there will be a massive rebellion against jesus christ at the end of the millennial kingdom and god will have to destroy the rebels by fire from heaven because the problem isn't education it's not the economy it's not the democrats It's not the Republicans. It's not the Iranians. It's not the Russians. It's not the Czechs. As Pogo said, we've met the enemy and he is us. We're the problem. It's the sin nature in every human being and human volition that's the problem. But God sets up every type of, with little provision from God, to maximum provision from God. And under every option, man fails. Now, there are greater failures and lesser failures. There are people who rise to great heights of being uh, being spiritual heroes than, than at other times in history. But what Peter's saying here, the, the, the law was a yoke on the neck of the, the Israelites. They couldn't achieve perfection they weren't able to bear it. It was destined for failure, so why are you going to re- repeat a failure option? We've got something better in this dispensation. And so that becomes the thrust of what he says, and, and his emphasis shifts in verse 11 to grace. So after all of the discussion, after um, Peter talks, And after Paul and Barnabas talk, after James' talk, then they come back and they come to a conclusion in verses 19 and 20. And in verses 19 and 20, their conclusion is, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood, in other words, things that would be genuinely offensive to Jew- the Jewish sensibilities among them it's bringing in the law of the weaker brother before it's clearly spelled out by Paul and so the Jer- the, the Jerusalem decree it's written out and starting it from verses twenty four to twenty nine it's it's spelled out and they say, in conclusion of verse twenty eight and twenty nine it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden, i.e. the law, no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you do well. The conclusion of the Jerusalem Council is a conclusion based on grace and not based on law. So the law at this, by Acts 15, is clearly seen to not be related to either salvation or sanctification. their understanding that the law has been replaced by the Spirit and by grace. Not that there wasn't grace in the Old Testament, and not that there aren't mandates in the church age, but that the law represents a dispensational orientation to Israel and the Mosaic law as all that there was. And it was perfect, but it wasn't enough. And so a new dispensation came in with new aspects. And Paul uses a different model in Galatians chapter 3. And this is a crucial chapter, and I don't want to get... It's going to take more than three or four minutes to go through this, but it's very important to understand Galatians 3 because in Galatians 3 what Paul says is that he uses the analogy of of a Roman household... Where the, or even a Jewish household, where the child is treated as a as a child until he reaches a certain age, and during the time of childhood, he's treated as a child, talked to as a child, he's addressed as a child, he's under the control of a pedagogue or a tutor, but when he reaches maturity, which in a Jewish household is the age of of uh, 13, and, bar mit- and he's bar mitzvah. he becomes a son of the commandment. At that point, he's an adult, and he's to be addressed by his parents as an adult. Uh, certain kinds of discipline are no longer uh, possible. That boy is now a man. And in a bar mitzvah ceremony, he will say, I am now a man. And his voice usually cracks a few times while he's saying it, because he's usually going through puberty about that time. So... That's the analogy. The law was temporary, treating the human race through, through the Jews as a child. But with Christ coming, it's the end of the law, and that tutor dispensation is ended, and now we're adults under freedom and responsibility and grace. So we'll start with the second point next time in terms of the law and the church-age believer, again showing in Galatians 3. Galatians 3 is a crucial passage. Galatians was the first epistle Paul wrote. And I think Romans is the crystallization and expansion of everything that Paul taught in Galatians. And if you want to get a quick, easy orientation to Romans, you go through Galatians because all those basic themes are hit in in the right order. So we'll come back and we'll start here next uh, Thursday night. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of how valuable your word is, the, the law, the Old Testament, that it is not to be diminished, but that it had a distinct, unique purpose, and that purpose ended at the cross. But there is still much that we can learn from the law, much that is valuable there, but... It is not to be understood or applied apart from the New Testament uh, realities of our unity in Christ, the, our identification with his death, burial, and resurrection, the baptism by the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, who is the one who is the true energizer of the spiritual life in the church age. Father, we pray that as we study these things, we might be energized encouraged, strengthened, and gain a greater enthusiasm for all that we have in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.